Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Professor Thomas A. Waymond, a professor of classics in the Department of Comparative Arts and Letters at Brigham Young University. We're talking about the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints, a new book from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute at BYU. And Dr. Waymond contributed a chapter called Creating Canon, Authority, New Prophecy, and Sacred Texts. Dr. Wayman, I know you as Tom. I've known you for quite some time, so if I call you Tom, I hope that doesn't throw people off. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and please do call me Tom. It's great to see you, Blair. <laughs> and you could call me Mr. Hodges. No, <laughs> Mr. Hodges, okay. <laughs> no, Very kidding. formal today. Yeah, yes, yes. Well, this is great. Um, this book is written for Latter-day Saints, so uh, scholars like you are taking your background in different areas of study of early Christianity and introducing Latter-day Saints to the scholarship about this stuff to help Latter-day Saints think through our own faith and get to know our Christian ancestors or Christian forebearers. And what, a, what an excellent project. Um, when did you first hear about it? I was involved in the early planning stages and the discussion of what this book could be, what they wanted it to be. And the editors had a very kind of clear pathway towards, let's subtly try to expand a discussion. This discussion had, if you will, had some pretty defined boundaries as far as this is where we stand on these issues. This is how we think. And I, I think, and I don't want to speak for the editors, but in those early discussions, there was a sense of what can we bring new? What, what's what been said in the last hundred years? And hmm. are these boundaries really quite as defined as perceived? And so, yeah, it was a great project. They brought a great team with art historians, uh, tech scholar Jason Combs, and and done, have done some great uh, work here. And your background is in New Testament studies. You earned a PhD at Claremont uh, in New Testament studies. So the chapter that you contributed is about Scripture. So let's talk about Scripture. Um, the New Testament itself sometimes refers to the Scriptures, right? It talks about the Scriptures are profitable for such and such. It, it's easy from our modern perspective to assume that that includes the New Testament itself, you know, we see the New Testament as Scripture, but the New Testament's idea of Scripture was a little bit different. Um, absolutely, that's true. It refers to them, and many people will be surprised that it uses a word simply means the writings. And it's hmm. probably meant to distinguish between the oral tradition and the interpretation of those writings and the writings themselves. And not all books that are quoted as Scripture do we hold as canon. And so, for example, a book like the book of Jude will talk about the assumption of Moses. And this is a book now that is around, we know it, but not considered canonical. But if you're thinking about what they're relying on as scripture, the New Testament isn't relying on other New Testament works, but they're relying on the Hebrew Bible, primarily the prophets, Psalms, and Genesis. Those get the, they do the heavy lifting of what they're going to call scripture. And when Jesus says, search the scriptures, right, he tells people that are asking him questions to search the scriptures. And so he was kind of most, he was referring to the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures that were set for Israel at that time for Jews. Yeah, absolutely. That that passage in John 5 is even an interesting uh, nuance to it. He says, search the scriptures in our accepted translation. That sounds like an encouragement. Hmm. He, he literally says, you search the scriptures and think they have eternal life in them. 
And then he goes on to say, but that's not the whole thing. So there's even a subtle critique of scripture as bounded as canon. Like you need to hear more voices, living voices, we might say, something that way. Yes. And so as he's challenging some of their ideas and and sort of we see Christ today as living scripture, right? We see him as sort of embodying the spirit of scripture, which is just an idea of heavenly communication, an idea of truth, uh, an idea of messages from God instead of just writings. So what was Christianity like after the crucifixion and resurrection, before there was a set canon of New Testament scripture? What, what did Christianity look like at that time? I think a lot of us overlook the fact that Christianity really begins in a moment of trauma. And the trauma is that this leader that they have begun to ask, is he God? Is he our savior? Is he a great prophet? And he's simply gone. He's left them all to grapple in this canonical space. And we can see it in places like Galatians. How much does the Hebrew Bible guide this new community? And it looks like from Paul that there were differing opinions that were strongly held. And so people are asking things like, well, you know, if you're Jewish and you you want to be a Christ follower, do you have to be circumcised? And and that's, you know, that's going to be yes. People are going to say, yeah, that, that you do. But then somebody asks a really important question. What if I join later? Do I still abide by the Hebrew Bible? Do I have to stay away from eating pork and and things like that. And it becomes a canonical conversation. Um, what is scripture for them? And there's nothing in the New Testament writings to answer that until they actually write them. So it's a fascinating moment of openness, if you will. Your chapter talks about these, you call them charismatics, people that are having visionary experiences. There was a lot of newness and there was production of texts. Give us some insight into that. I always think about this in, in light of Latter-day Saint tradition and and early Christian tradition, that these moments where somebody pauses and can say, hey, the canon that we have is insufficient to meet today's needs, and there begins to be this flowering of new texts. I don't know, I have never been convinced at least, that Matthew wrote knowing that he would add to the canon. I think he lived his whole life with a canon, but I think I think he writes in the spirit of, this is what it means to me. This is what the Jesus story means to me. But along come these people, the charismatics, these very powerful preachers. They're eloquent. They're well-spoken. They're powerful in presence. And I think people begin to see in them a scriptural voice. Just like the Hebrew Bible held an influence, like, here's what we accept. Here's what we receive. Well, I'm going to start listening to someone like Paul who preaches very powerfully. And I think if we had an open enough mind, I think we should allow for James to say, I don't really agree with Paul. We wash over that a lot, but James comes along and he, he really tries to subvert some of what Paul said. But it's a very charismatic moment in the church. James is saying, I stand with Christ. Paul's saying, I stand with Christ. But they disagree on how much you should obey the, the law of works, if you will, or the, or the kind of kosher type laws. Like where James is saying faith without works is dead. Like he's, yeah. you see him as, as actually having dialogue or sort of giving different perspectives than other New Testament figures. Yeah, I think there's another really fascinating canonical moment going on in, in the New Testament Gospels. Mark writes this early story. It's a little rough. You know, it's Greek's not so great. It's hard to read uns- and not, you know, not always clear. And Matthew and Luke come along and radically alter it. 
and they're throwing out his order, and they're changing the way he reported what Jesus said. And we do that all in kind of a harmony, like we've washed it all clean. But the reality, that's a very charismatic moment in a church where somebody says, you know, Mark, he believed in Jesus, but he got it pretty wrong. And that's some of the charismatic moments that will carry through into the first and second century. This kind of commitment, I still stand with Jesus, but so-and-so, I don't think he he got it quite right, or she didn't get it quite right. And that's where it will lead into things like Montanism, where we need new prophets to guide the community. That'll be one solution to these early conversations. When you talk about charismatics, maybe define that a little bit. It's not a word that we hear often in Latter-day Saint circles. Yeah, the the charisma would be from this idea that you have a gift. It it's a it's a spiritual gift. It's something that you that you hear and feel from someone else. Paul uses the word regularly in his letters. I hope to bring you some charisma, some some gift, we translate it, um, if we are reading Romans 1, for example. And I think what the early charismatics are probably doing is following this Pauline model. Paul appears to be a pretty powerful individual, at least in presence, and I think they're enamored with the way he could deliver the Christ story. Are you talking about power presence, like when he tells the story, they feel something or yeah. like he's got this ability to deliver, like a, like we would talk about the spirit, right? Feeling the spirit when someone speaks. And I think he's also tacking along pretty well with the Hebrew Bible that he's, he's giving enough support from the Hebrew Bible that people are saying, yeah, that's the right reading of scripture. There's not too much law in it. There's a, a, just enough Isaiah. There's just enough Jeremiah, if you will. And then he brings that together. And I think they find in him a very meaningful, charismatic preacher that where they feel, as you said, there's something that touches them. And I think the second generation of people say, we need the charisma in the church. That becomes a kind of proving point, is the Holy Spirit with us, that you feel this charismatic presence through teachers. How does the New Testament itself define Scripture? Do we find a definition there in Paul's letters or elsewhere where it says, this is what scripture is as as now they're writing it, um, you know, as these letters are coming you know, to be seen as scripture. I mean, it would be wonderful if there were. We could reverse engineer and say, okay, now the New Testament fits this definition that the New Testament advances. I would say that the best thing I could offer here is that uh, writers recognize that when they're writing their own words and they're quoting they will pause and say in the writing. So there's a clear category they know about. There's not a case in my memory serves me well that that someone says, well, that's not scripture. But almost every author will gesture in this way, and graphize in the writings. And, and so it doesn't define as much as it shows uh, how does that, if you will, support a thinker's beliefs. Almost every writer, when they get to the point of saying, this is what I believe about Jesus, it will be guided by Graphis, the scriptures. And so in that sense, I suppose you would say that their definition is that your belief in Jesus is informed by what went before. Hmm. That brings to mind two places where it does warn about like false teachers or, you know, things like that. And yeah, I can't think of, I mean, you'd know better than I do, but I also can't think of an instance where it talks about 
Well, I guess in Revelation, right? It says don't add to or take away from this particular book from Revelation. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's about that. it. Yeah, and yeah, but it's thinking of itself there, not yeah, really yeah, twenty seven. Right. I learned that first as a missionary, right? When people would say, you can't add to or take away from the Bible. And the quick answer was, well, actually, <laughs> there were things in the New Testament that were written after the book of Revelation that were added there. So, we, you know, that complicates it a little bit. Yeah. That, that, I mean, it's a really complicated read to think that that person is writing in, in light of seven <laughs> books that are finished and and done. But, uh, but at any rate, it does think of itself as a closed story, at least for that single book. So we've got these writings that are starting to be compiled. How do we get to an actual compilation of books, an actual canon where – what was behind that movement? Why did they feel like they needed to close that off if it grew out of this culture of just writings that were going around from different preachers and such? It's a really I, – and I try to document this in my chapter. You know, All chapters have these limitations of words and things and how much you can write. But what I'm trying to document for people is the earliest – judge, the earliest rule, if you will, the word canon, that they set out is that it needs to promote belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, it needs to support that, and it needs to do so through the Hebrew Bible. And so it's not a thing that it's like it has a story we don't believe, or it, you know, it teaches about early ordinances, and we've got to bury that stuff. It's all about when you, when you have these early Christian writings they might tell acts of the apostles or something. Does that promote belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And they'll call that the rule of faith. And that will be, if you will, an intellectual defining of canon. They don't necessarily use it that way early on, but it becomes that. Later, they'll say things about the shepherd of Hermas. Well, it's a book about repentance. It's a book about visions. It really doesn't promote the idea of you know, the belief in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your chapter also focuses a lot on the question of authority. As the canon was taking shape, it took authority figures to kind of help make that happen. What did authority in the church look like as the canon was starting to form? That's the place in my chapter that probably skips over the most amount of material. There are numerous authoritative figures in early Christianity, fascinating stories. And what what I find interesting, what the part I tried to kind of tease out of the story is that what does the church do? So we've, we have this intellectual umbrella. We're all working towards belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the question is, who owns that determination? Who gets to say, hey, you know, what you're doing does this, but what he's doing doesn't. And one of the things that an early um, influential leader will say is we're going to lean on the texts that are part of the liturgy. And what the liturgy has become subtly is a kind of functioning canon. Talk about what the liturgy is too, by the way. It's, it's an un, usually an unfamiliar word for us. Yeah, the liturgy um, happens in two ways. I'm using kind of a broad definition of liturgy, but the liturgy will functionally have two manifestations, the texts that are read in church on Sunday. And there's a list of these, this, the kind of an annual readings, just like we have a modern Sunday school curriculum. The early church has a liturgical calendar, and we read you know, stories from the resurrection at Easter, and we read, you know, birth narratives at Christmas, and we, we're going through this, this annual reading of the scripture. And the other thing that people who join the church will have to read passages and learn them from Gospel of Mark, Gospel of John, and also Book of Genesis. And so what we're doing is the church has said, okay, there's a lot of texts out there. We're not reading, say, Malachi right now. But what it's doing is it's created a functional canon it's created a canon that we all hear in church, 
and we all learned at baptism, and now early leaders like Athanasius will say, we need to own the liturgical process. We need to, like a curricular committee, we need to say those texts need to be canonical. They need to support this rule of faith. It's brilliant. Because there's other preachers out there who have these very powerful, charismatic, influential way of telling the story, and they're, they're, they're drawing crowds. But subtly what Athanasius does is say, but the canon of the church, the church's liturgical records, aren't what Valentinus is saying or Arius or something. They're the Gospel of Matthew. And so there begins to be this unification between message and authoritative people. And they do a good job. Um, I don't think it has any malicious intent. It's really hard, as everyone knows, to go to Sunday school and somebody stand up in the middle of Sunday school and deliver a prophecy. It ruins the lesson. And that's what the second and third century churches are facing. People say, well, I got to be like Paul. I go to church. Let me show you my spiritual gift. I had a revelation. And Athanasius is trying to put a lid on some of that. What are some other examples of that? Because it sounds like Athanasius was concerned about, about reaching an agreement about what worship looked like. Whereas there's also charismatics who are interested in prophecy and making you know, big declarations or kind of shows of power or of the spirit. And so that kind of is – am I off on that about how that tension was kind of working? No. I think we also might add in that the fourth century when a lot of this stuff is going on, we have a very destabilized moment in Christian history. We've come out of one of the great persecutions and for better or for worse, human nature is prone to predict the end of the world. So some of this prophecy begins to be very anti-Roman, very anti-empire, and, and the idea we're at the end. And Christians have, have heavily leaned into ascetic ideals, which is defined as the, the belief that I need to restrict diet, I need to restrict sexual practice and other things. And so some of these prophetic voices are strongly condemning marriage, not because they don't like marriage, but they're saying it's the end times, hey... We need to pull back on sexual contact. We need to limit foods. And I think the church is becoming this place where, where these disparate voices are pulling it apart. And so I think Athanasius sees unity. But there are belief issues. He does not like the Arians. And so he very clearly wants to you know, kind of draw a line around the Arian faction in the church and push them aside. But for the most part, I think it's a pretty good effort to say, hey, let's bring together people who believe alike. Okay, so they're really seeking some unity. They're seeking to pull a Christian community together to help it be able to survive and to have kind of a unified voice and a unified message. In the past, when I've thought about the canonization process, I had some stereotypes about it that I, I think are probably pretty common. There, there's a common story about the process of canonization, that there are these authority figures who are trying to squash or erase the truer or more authentic form of Christianity. And your chapter directly says that you want to complicate that idea a little bit. You don't say it's completely wrong, but you also say it's just, it's just more complicated than that. Yeah, I think, and my experience is the same as yours growing up Latter-day Saint. I, I had these ideas of kind of manipulative people taking away this pristine Christianity. And when you map that onto the story, it's really not like that. It does get rid of some forms of Christianity like Arianism and Gnosticism and I don't think we would appreciate them either as Latter-day Saints. These agnostic Christians favor a very charismatic type of Christianity that's extremely ascetic. 
and extremely otherworldly. And I'm not here to kind of jump into that issue, but yeah, it's it's common to think that there were kind of manipulative people. I, I'm not sure that's a good model anymore to, to think of canon. I think what canon is is the process by which people who believe the same identify who manages what is our doctrine. If we use a modern notion, and these are people trying to say, well, we all believe this, and we all accept that, and and so they want to get control. I think our own, Blair, if I could shift just a little bit, I sure. I want to be really careful here, but try to help the reader see something. When we reopen the canon in modern dispensation or in, moder- in the restoration, it simultaneously destabilized the ancient canon. And it's the exact same thing, in my opinion, that's happening in early Christianity. Christians open the canon, and they want to put new things in it. Clearly, Athanasius is doing this and others. But the challenge is it raises the question, what's really in the Bible? What's in the Old Testament? And they have big discussions. We should maybe shorten the Old Testament. And when we think about what we did, this we've destabilized the Bible dramatically as Latter-day Saints. And I think it's fair for a reader to ask, does the book of Genesis equal in authority to, say, the Doctrine and Covenants um, or something like that? Does, do we have this kind of, it replaces? We respect the old, but now we have the new. And that's what canon does. I think we did it in a belief that more is good, but the more supplanted the previous. What are some drawbacks to that process? There's a quote here I'll read. It says um, from from your chapter, it says, with too many people offering new revelations, the message of faith quickly spirals out of control and can lose its unique identity. And with too strict control over revelation, the institution can suppress the voice of the Holy Spirit. Talk a little bit about that dynamic. Yeah. What we're finding in in early Christianity in particular, and this has been known for quite a while, is that prophetic voice of any type becomes suspicious. And the reason is, is now we're putting on it this this narrow box approach. Does it promote the Trinity? Or And I shouldn't use Trinity because that's a negative word for Latter-day Saints, but does it promote belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And say you have a prophecy about the Romans coming to your town. Well, I don't know that that really supports the the belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's a non-selective process to say some things are non-canonical. We we have this in our own story. Where do the lectures on faith fit for us? They were in the canon. They were voted out of the canon. Yeah, they were the doctrine of the doctrine and covenants. Like back then, covenants meant revelation. So the doctrine was these lectures, and the covenants were these revelations. We've now removed that out. That's exactly right. And so... Now, it's not in our curricular offerings, and it's not me a call for these back, but it it shows that some interesting material falls by the wayside. Um, Joseph Smith's um, King Follett Discourse, another interesting theological moment in early Mormonism, is now kind of a thing scholars study, but not part of curriculum. And so, yeah, we lose prophetic voice by, strangely, by canonizing we, we suppress. Do you see that in the New Testament too? You mentioned a few Latter-day Saints sort of extra canonical things. What about with the New Testament? Are You earlier had mentioned a text that's mentioned um, that's no longer there. Are there any favorites for you where you're like, wow, actually that would have been pretty cool if that, if that was still part of our New Testament? 
I'm really fascinated by some of the Thomas literature. Not that I think it's probably that early, but at least, you know, early second century, contemporary with some of the Gospels and, and other letters. And why I am interested, it's grappling with things like human gender and sexuality. And it ha- you, so you have an early Christ believer writing this text. What do we do about asceticism? And it's overtly ascetic, but I think it's worth having a discussion. Yeah, asceticism, like not having sex, basically, right? Yeah, like and certain denying the flesh. Things, yeah. yeah, and and other things that way. And this idea that resident within every human are, is this seed that needs to be cultivated, and we've lost that in the New Testament. The idea of the seed is a soul. And the body is a tomb, and we are trying to kind of cultivate within that tomb. Um, we lose some really elegant expressions of Christian belief. If they're the only one, I think it becomes hard. Like if that's all we had was Gospel of Thomas, it'd be hard. But I, I find that I find that a loss. I really appreciate the Didache. It's another early teachings text that gives us versions of say, how do you act when Christians visit your home? How long can they stay? What if you do? What do you do if you baptize and you don't have warm water? Um, what do you do next? And it it just has these great kind of Christians trying to be Christians message. So I really really like those two. Of all the things that your chapter could do for Latter Day Saints in particular, as you're introducing them to these early day saints, was there a particular thing that you really wanted to drive home? A particular message that you feel like Latter Day Saints could really benefit from in thinking about how canon works. Yes, um, clearly, and I think this follows along with the efforts of the entire book, to realize that these early Christians were our people too. But if you identify as a Christian, if you think of yourself as a Christ believer, I, I think Latter-day Saints will be much in a much healthier place to say those weren't our enemies. They didn't take things away from us. They chose the best. And there might be a few others that we want. Sure, I get that. But I think so long, and maybe this is just my own upbringing, I'm willing to acknowledge that, but my own own upbringing taught me these folks were conspiring, taking stuff away, manipulating, altering truth. And I want early Christians to read a name like Irenaeus and say, hey, he's like me. I think we'd be, I think we could be friends and and whatnot, and learn from him. We do not discuss the patristic fathers in church at all. And it would be wonderful if we could say they're part of our heritage. Hmm. Last question. We have an open canon. Latter-day Saints believe in an open canon. We have living prophets and apostles that uh, that people look to. But we also don't canonize new stuff often. In I, I can't think of anything that's been officially canonized in my lifetime. I think when they redid the Bible in the late 70s or like maybe it was – 1981 or something they were like that when a new edition 79 and 81 they did yeah okay they did the, the bible and then they did the doctrine coming <laughs> yeah. yeah and they added some things right they added another official declaration yeah um and some other things what do you make of that that um that, that we don't canonize a lot that, that latter-day saints live with this idea of open canon well at the risk of saying something a bit controversial but trying i hope you'll all those of you who listen will appreciate my interest in supporting the community Early, I mentioned in this chapter, when you create a canon and you put borders on it, you suppress prophetic revelatory voices. I think it's really hard for us now to navigate this space. Let's just take, for example, the reduction in the hour of church. Thank heavens, this is great. 
But is this a policy change or is it a revelation? And we, I think, as a community, have a really hard time at this point distinguishing a new revelation. We're in the canonical space. It's closed. The Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants are filled. We can kind of add these things on the end that kind of are near revelations, like the official declaration. And, And my sense is the burden of having a canon is that the revelatory voices tend to tend to go away. In the Pauline churches, for example, it looks like their Sunday school meeting was was founded upon the principle that someone shared a prophecy and two or three people got up and talked about the prophecy. And I think those revelatory voices built that the Corinthian Sunday school could say, this revelation started here. We've had several revelations that build it. And this is something we all believe. It becomes a kind of very unifying thing for a community. But hmm. that, that, as everyone knows, that's very hard to regulate that type of thing. Yeah. And the New Testament is a story of trying to bring people together who are not always seeing things the same way. That's what the story is. So Yeah, certainly yeah. so. That's Thomas Wayman. He's professor of classics in the Department of Comparative Arts and Letters at Brigham Young University. And today we're talking about his chapter, Creating Canon, Authority, New Prophecy, and Sacred Texts. It's part of a great new book from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute called Ancient Christians, An Introduction for Latter-day Saints. You can find more about that book on the Faith Matters website, faithmatters.org. Tom, thanks a ton for spending this time with me and talking about canon. Oh, thanks, Blair. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire. 